Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1973. Things are changing in the world, including the man who plays James Bond. We've left Sean Connery behind and we move now into the era of Moore, Roger Moore. That's right, let the rock and roll sounds of Paul and Linda McCartney and Wings introduce us to Live and Let Die. <laughs> Best song ever in the world, possibly. Uh, it's a pretty good one, pretty up there. <laughs> top, top three Bond themes? For me, yeah. I, I always kind of switch between this one and Goldfinger for, like, top theme. I mean, Goldfinger's classic, but, I mean, Live and Let Die is a genuine, like, good song. What are you saying about Goldfinger? Well, I'm not saying about Goldfinger, but, I mean, like, Goldfinger is inextricably tied to uh, the Bond franchise. Yes. But, like, Live and Let Die, like, that's a, that's a single. What I'm saying is Goldfinger has never been covered by Guns N' Roses. Exactly, yes. There's never been an Axl Rose version of Goldfinger. So the sound you can hear emanating from the other side of my Skype screen, because that's a thing, is Stuart Late. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. I'm Natalie Bohensky, and this is Raven Bond, which I probably should have said in the intro, but that's okay. We're moving into the Roger Moore era. How exciting. We are. I'm very, I'm very excited. This is low-key, maybe my favourite, I mean, certainly going into this, maybe my favourite era of the movies, which is a bit controversial, but it's definitely the ones that I watched when I was quite young, as I, I've mentioned, so there's I, some fondness here. I feel like we need to put everything in the Roger Moore era into the giant box of, of its time. Oh, well, yeah. wouldn't revisit, <laughs> but hey, let's not think too much about it. <laughs> this movie would not be made today, let's no, just say. <laughs> and we have a special guest who requested coming on for this film from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast, Dan Beeston. Good evening, listeners, and good evening, Stu and Nat. We're excited to have you. Oh, I'm excited to be here. It's always <laughs> nice to come in and have a big rant about pop culture. Oh, dear. <laughs> Well, I want to kind of preface our discussion because this is a weird time for three white people to be discussing a Bond film that is the first Bond film that <laughs> has a predominantly black cast and came out at sort of the height of the black exploitation era and therefore has a lot of elements to it that, as I said, of its time, wouldn't do it now. It's pretty unbelievable stuff. Like the government giving a white man a license to kill when confronting a large group of people of colour. <laughs> I, just, I, don't, I don't see that happening in the real world, Matt. Well, this is what I mean. And I really, it's been such a horrible couple of weeks because, of course, we had... It's the- only been like eight days. It really has. So to put it all in context, as we record this, we're in the second week of um, American protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, the murder of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, in Minneapolis, which sparked a wave of protests across America and subsequently has seen their president, in inverted commas, the the military on the streets and tear gas people to get them out of the way of a photo opportunity and just the most insane stuff that when when Trump was elected, you sort of think, I mean, look, it's going to be bad, but are are we going to get to the sort of internal civil war thing? Is that really going to happen in four years? And it's just it's just looking more and more. The answer is maybe. Yeah. So it's a, you know, I want to express, and I think we're all the same here, that we absolutely abhor police brutality and we abhor the injustice and the discrimination against people of colour, obviously in America, but here in Australia and 
around the world. So it, it, it is really tough to think about discussing this and coming from a place of whiteness and not understanding black culture. So I guess just to frame that and say, we all need to learn more about people who are different to us as white people. And that's what I'm trying to do during this process is listen more. But I guess we've established doing a Bond pop culture podcast and this is the next one in line. So if- it sure is. It, it's not yeah. our choice to be doing this movie yeah. now, but this is this is the next one in the list. So, you know, it puts certain aspects of this movie in a really different light. And I think if anything, that'll be interesting to discuss. So having said that, as I, as I have said, as I did say before we started recording that, I think we were probably going to talk about some problematic elements in this movie, regardless of the overall context of, of history at the moment, I think. Oh, sure. It's not like we we woke up going, oh, wow, um, I see. You're, so you're saying black people aren't all voodoo practitioners. It's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, like, it, of course, but I just wanted to say up front that, you know, because normally I don't do things really like content warnings or trigger warnings because I kind of feel like most people as adults can make their own decisions based on the content description that we're putting out there. Mm. And we're doing the James Bond films, which obviously some people don't like. I figure that if people are listening, they'll make their own choices about when and where they, they turn off. I, I, I could be abrogating responsibility, but I... I think that if, if people are listening to a podcast about James Bond and their woke meter is like real high, then they've made a big mistake. <laughs> Like, even the latest James Bond films, like, if you're, like, really left-leaning, you're yeah, like, I elements. don't know whether I want to watch that. <laughs> Look, it's a really interesting question about how much can you put aside discomfort for entertainment and how much can you look at things and go, I don't feel comfortable watching this, but if somebody else is enjoying it and it speaks to them, you know, it, uh, there's so much subjectivity in in terms of entertainment in these kind of blockbustery studio films that are predominantly made by white people, financed by white people, you know, so it's, yeah, it's it, look, it's a tough one. And I guess I just want to say, if you don't think this will be your bag, given the current stress that a lot of people are under and given the current emotional turmoil that many people are going through no judgment from us if you want to skip this one up to you i, I, I don't i disagree i reckon challenge yourself listener well really step up to be really upset <laughs> I, I put myself and then send all your complaints to dan yeah i i'll take that on board i hope people listen i don't think we're about to you know uncork a, a, a vile spewing racist rant i don't think that's what we're about to <laughs> Um, well, know, one of us has a real awakening all of a sudden. Well, Hopefully we're on the same side as the listener. We don't pre-plan these podcasts. You know, we watch the films and we, you know, Stu and I have a quick chat and do our minute challenge before we start recording and then we just let the discussion free flow. So we may some, say something incorrect or use language incorrectly and if we do do that, let us know. You know, we're all on Twitter and um, we're big boys and girls. We can, you know, deal with some criticism. So also, yes. you may wander off for 15 minutes and talk about Batman. Anything well, can happen. True. Exactly. <laughs> I haven't really had much of a, a response to the, the Batman podcast idea. Oh, a few tweets, I should say. Funny you should mention Batman because I hadn't listened to that episode when I started watching this film, Live and Let Die. And the first thing that struck me was how old the film stock looked. Like it has mm. that like 1970s grainy film stock. And I'm like, this feels like Batman. This feels like like the, the Adam West Batman. <laughs> and then I discovered Adam West was actually up to be this Bond. Yes. That blew my mind. I, I read about that too in the, in the lead up to this podcast. I was like, are you are kidding me? He was considered when they were looking into who should replace George Lazenby for Diamonds Are Forever and Adam West and Burt Reynolds was another one who was on the list. 
How does Burt Reynolds get on that list? Well, apparently he was in a TV show where he had a moustache and looked kind of detectory. But the feeling was is you can't have an American as Bond. And I kind of agree. Well, you mean someone moustached as Bond? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine Bond in a moustache. He's already porn star enough. Yeah. <laughs> in the big Ron Jeremy tash. <laughs> So, uh, yes, Live and Let Die, 1973. They've kept a lot of Connery elements, like Guy Hamilton is the director who just directed Diamonds Are Forever, who also directed Goldfinger, and Tom Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Diamonds Are Forever, writes the screenplay for this film, and obviously Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli are still the producers, so they keep certain elements, but they get a new bond. So I guess we should do our minute challenge, because I imagine this will figure. Stu, do you want to lead off with the minute challenge yes i definitely can um so the first item on my list obviously is roger moore yes uh first outing from mr moore for sir roger he um well he he wouldn't have been a sir by this point surely no but do you know i did some maths he was 45 when he made this film yes well he was old he was older than sean connery so like when he started he was already older than connery was in diamonds of forever so that's crazy because he looks younger he looks amazing in this movie yeah whatever tanning bed he's on is not (laughs) handbagging his face too much he's he's lean he's he's athletic he looks like a secret agent he look he looks like he can run around judo chopping people like crazy it's great i think so so in this one certainly later on in some of the subsequent (laughs) movies it becomes less believable he also has incredibly large nipples i just want to put that out there (laughs) want to say there is a lot of shirtless action in this one there's a lot of shirtless action, a lot of safari suit action. Oh, yes. Well, you know, 73, you're right, well, right in the zone. The producers thought of him because they had been gambling buddies all together, all three of them. Of course. Lee said when they were running out of ideas, how about we get Roger Moore? And he said, oh, yes, it sounds good. Yes, I, I'd love to. People make fun of a character being called Pussy Galore, but when it comes to euphemistic names, Roger Moore is the <laughs> perfect name for James Bond. <laughs> It's golden. It it really is. You know, I until you've ju- you've said that just now, I have never considered that like a potential euphemistic name. That's amazing. No one ever does. And when you point it out, they're like, "What?" Yeah, it's pretty good. It works even awesome. better than Sean Connery because no one knows what a Connery is or how to shape it. <laughs> Fantastic. I nicked myself shaving my Connery. <laughs> and I guess you pierce a Brosnan. Um, Ooh, Prince Albert. <laughs> you want to be careful, you can get a, an infected Pierce Brosnan. So what yeah. are, that, that was the first thing on my minute challenge too, of course, was Roger Moore. Uh, it actually said Roger Moore was 45. But what are people's thoughts on Roger Moore, I suppose, in this film, in his debut outing? I think it's, it's, I think so it's iconic. Yeah, it's a totally James, different energy. James Bond is supposed to be relaxed about danger, but he looks like he's smoked a spliff or something. <laughs> You do see him smoking multiple cigars, including, I'll point out, when he's hang gliding. <laughs> yes, I love that. He's hang gliding off the back of Coral Jr.'s boat. Smoking a stogie. A Does it count as a hang glider when it's that small? He was just dangling off a kite, I think. It's <laughs> yes, like a proto-kite surfing it's a hang stealth glider. glider. Yes. And um, Coral, by the way, Coral Jr., that is supposed to be Coral's son. So yes, Quar- I picked up on that. That was good. No, but in the book, it's actually Coral. So he, you know, goes oh. back 
Does uh, he not die in the book? Well, uh, this book came out before Dr. No. Oh, of course. Okay. And he goes back to see Quarrel in Dr. No, the book, I assume. Right. Yes. What a weird way for the movie to deal with that. It's like, ah, it's his son. But he didn't die. So at least that's something. That's true. He didn't die. That's that's very true. I was watching him going, now, does he die in this one as well? <laughs> I was expecting him to die. He's the sort of character who dies in these movies. Yeah. But I think... You know, they probably made the choice to go, look, if Bond turns up and kills the son, always responsible for <laughs> the son as well as the dad, could be a little on the nose. Absolutely. Uh, so carry on, Stu. Yeah, I mean, well, just to wrap up on Roger Moore, I, I thought I, I really like him as James Bond. I, I like the fact that he's so relaxed and seemingly above it all, because I think when he does get flustered, you know, it's it's serious. And, and it does happen across a couple of different movies where like so, something does get him really rattled. And you know that's serious when, when you know you know shit's getting real if if uh, Roger Moore is is uh, concerned about it. Sean Connery fit the original version of what they were trying to get at, but I think by this time he is the perfect person to embody what they are trying to get across, which is a suave international man of mystery. I think he's perfect casting. I think he's absolutely wonderful in in just about every one of these movies. As I said, he becomes less believable <laughs> as the movies go on and he he visibly ages on screen. But in this one, I think he's, he's looking great. He's doing good, good work. I like him. I like him a lot. So they did a few things in this film to try to distance him from Sean Connery a bit. I mean, first of all, he's in flares. What's that about? Um, <laughs> Again, 1973. You don't see him in a tuxedo. Although he's... you do see him talking to his tailor in the middle of a, of a job. <laughs> Putting on the most brownish beige <laughs> suit. <laughs> you know, the brown trousers beige. That is like coffee grounds brown. It's yeah. oh. brown tie and he's picking out ties going, no, that one's a little frenetic. <laughs> But I'll keep the other three. You're just putting on the most brown beige suit <laughs> and you're criticising a tie for being frenetic. Um, they don't show him in a tux in this film. They don't have him order a vodka martini, shaken. Oh, of course, yeah. He orders a bourbon and I think at one point a gin and tonic. And there was a few other things. I was watching a making of documentary on my DVD because I'm still on the DVDs. <laughs> and the making of was quite enlightening and hopefully will help us talk about some of the other issues with this film um, because you hear from creative people who are explaining decisions that they made and, and why. But, yes, yeah, so I think they made a deliberate attempt to give Roger Moore his own spin, angling for that gentleman spy. Yes, exactly. Well, he, he'd already um, played the saint, I think. Yes, and that was the other thing he had to avoid. He wasn't allowed to raise his eyebrows too much because apparently in The Saint, that's what his character, Simon Templar, was best known for doing is having this very quizzical eyebrow. So they had to right. keep Roger Moore from doing too much eyebrow. So he had to never he'd never be puzzled or astonished. Yeah, or minimise it. He nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe that's right. Maybe he just had to be deadpan because he was told, don't look like you have any emotion. <laughs> any emoting and we have to pay like royalties. <laughs> hey, do you know Do you know how you're supposed to have martinis, Nat? I believe it's um, not with vodka. People don't like vodka martinis. Stirred, not shaken. Yes. Because you bruise the gin. It's supposed to be stirred, not shaken. If you shake it instead of stirring it, you're, a, you're an uncouth monster who wants bruised gin. But he has vodka martini. Well, he's bruising something. <laughs> Your ego, by the sounds. <laughs> but um, in the books, he would ask for them uh, stirred, not shaken. But in the movie, they went, oh, we, we don't want that. We want someone shaking something because it's a visual medium and shaking's much more interesting than stirring. So they changed it around. But then 
Question. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, some people had shaken martinis because if you had to specify stirred, not shaken, like surely a martini is just stirred. Like why does the qualifier have to come in there? Well, that's uh, that's why it makes more sense on film because it's James Bond going, hey, I'd like you to make me a martini, but fuck it up for me. Do a shitty, ver- <laughs> do the shitty version intentionally because that's what I'm asking you for. How you you, you know your job it. and I'm telling you to do it different. How do you bruise alcohol? I don't know. It's like when you burn milk by putting into into tea. No one really understands any of the physics here. I don't think any of us are physicists. <laughs> if only we knew one. <laughs> Put the call out to Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast. To Never end. heard of it. <laughs> and Roger Moore was then, by the time this film came out, it did really well at the box office and he was secure in the role so he obviously did something right i really really like roger moore as james bond i think he's very very good after he died a a bunch of uh stories came out about him um which just confirmed that he was actually like a really cool guy there was a lot of public love for him which was very heartening to see one of the ones that i love was there was a, a bbc reporter who as a kid met roger moore and told him that he knew that he wasn't really james bond but roger moore said ah but i am james bond i'm just undercover right and then years later working for the bbc had the chance to again meet a much older roger moore and told him that anecdote and said oh you probably don't remember and and roger moore said yes i'm sorry I, i don't actually remember uh, that particular interaction. And then about an hour later, saw Roger Moore in the car park. Roger Moore bounds up to him and goes, ah, yes, I did actually remember that encounter, but there might have been some Spectre spies around. You know, and then bound it off again. He's amazing. He was, yeah, apparently he was doing that to just everyone. He was like Doctor Who or Father Christmas. He was just this this wonderful man who obviously relished being this figure in pop culture. Well, I think he kind of relieved himself of the burden of Sean Connery because I saw a really interesting interview with him talking on BBC Radio or something a few years back, obviously before he died, saying that to him, Connery was Bond and he never wanted to try to replicate that. And Mm. he just thought that he'd play the gentleman spy angle and that sort of thing. So he seemed to have made that conscious decision. In the making of, he says, the one thing that he was worried about is how he said, my name is Bond, James Bond, because he didn't want to kind of automatically go, my name is Bond. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly adopt a weird Scottish accent and a lisp. But the way he says Bond to me sounds as natural as Sean Connery's. Yes, well, well, that's the weird thing about Roger Moore is that obviously, like, Sean Connery, like, is amazing and, and the icon and the guy who made the role his own. But I feel like when people get an image of James Bond in their head, they might not picture Roger Moore specifically, but they're picturing this James Bond. They're picturing the suave sophisticated, unflappable man of mystery. Do you know what I mean? The one is not really that sneaky. Yeah. He's not really spying on a lot of things and blowing no, a lot of shit. No, he's just swanning about, you know. <laughs> yeah, he swans about, doesn't he? Yes, he has less of a blunt instrument feel to him. Much more of the polished sculpted vase type yeah. thing. <laughs> and I love that the first shot of him in the film is just in bed with a woman. Cool. It's just like his chest with his absurdly large nipples and uh, <laughs> into the this case. is a this is a trained secret agent who is licensed to kill it's really weird that his first scene is this carry on thing where he's got to hide a woman in the cupboard and get yeah, found and out by his boss. I was going to say, though, because like it's just so strange because he's acting like, oh, you've got to hide. And it's like, 
isn't that his house? Like, surely M is the one who should just, like, bugger off. It's, like, two in the morning or something, isn't it? Yeah, M is really interested in taking a peek in his bedroom. Yeah, yeah like, like he when goes, do you walk into someone's, someone's house bedroom? at three in the morning and go, oh, just have a quick look in your bedroom while well, whether you've just come yeah. out of? Now, look, there is actually a reason why <laughs> Bond shouldn't be caught with a girl in his bed, which is the girl is the other secret agent that he's supposed to be working with. Yeah, oh, really? Who's vanished. Yeah. M talks about a Bond did very well with his recent operation with the Italians or something, but the um, female Italian agent has gone missing and you wouldn't happen to know where she is. And he says, oh, no, I don't. But, like, why is that a thing? Like, why not? Don't screw the crew. I mean, <laughs> imagine, imagine. M's like, you're supposed to be working with this girl and you're shacking up with her. <laughs> it's against God's will, Bond. <laughs> I mean, look, it's not the last time that some carry-on style elements will come into the Roger Moore Bond period. So I remember, I think this may have been one of the earliest Bond films that I can remember seeing because that image of him using the magnetic watch Mm. to take down the zip, unzip the girl's dress in the cupboard after she comes out of the cupboard, that just for some reason is like I can remember that from my childhood, that kind of snaking zip down her back. I don't know what that says about me. But no, just... no, no. The, weirdly, I have that exact same image in my head. I, I remember that watch and I remember that scene. Now, before we move on, I just want to bring up that Q is not in this film. And no, he's not. Yeah, so it's the first film since From Russia With Love that Desmond Llewellyn was not in. And the reason he's not in it is they decided that there was a, a lot of emphasis on gadgets and they wanted to tone that down a bit. By giving him a magnet watch. Well, this is the thing. It's not a big deal. He doesn't have a big briefing with Q about how it works. He knows how it works. It's been returned yes. to him after being repaired. And Bond, you know, zaps M's spoon to his magnetic watch and says, ah, see. So Bond already knows how it works. And Money Penny actually says, here's the watch from Q, or Q sent this watch to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it pissed Desmond Llewellyn off because he was working on a sitcom or something or a TV show at the time, and he had himself written out of three episodes. Oh, so then he had time. So he had time. I, I don't know if TV filmed one episode a week or something like that, but he had himself written out so he could go be in the Bond film, and then they decided, you know what, we think there's too much of an emphasis on gadgets, so we're just going to play it down, so we don't need you. <laughs> <laughs> But then this would be the last Bond film that Desmond Llewellyn missed until he died. So Yes, well, I was about to say he's missed a couple in the last couple of years. But um, Thank you, Stu. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we've had to go back to young, sort of slightly awkward genius Q. We, which is not a, not a bad update. It's I don't hate that. It's a shame we can get talk- more John Cleese. As much as I love John Cleese, that is one of my least favourite things that he's ever done as R. Oh, it's not nearly the least favourite thing from the film that he starred in, though. The Bond film he was in, but we're not talking about that one. (laughs) I do feel like it was a bit of an odd time because they'd obviously introduced John Cleese as R because they were worried that Desmond Llewellyn might hang up the boots. He did, and then they were left with John Cleese. Although they kept Judy Dench's M, they went in a different yes. direction. <laughs> but they didn't bring him in until Skyfall, was it? Uh, yeah, I think it was Skyfall. They brought a, yeah. a new, a new I, queue. I don't think he had he had a queue in uh, Casino Royale or the other one, <laughs> Quantum of Solace. <laughs> Dearing me. You're getting Greg to get him into Casino Royale. That is correct. I didn't realise he was such a big Peter Sellers fan. 
<laughs> it has been suggested to us that we watch the 1967-8 Casino Royale with Peter Sellers and David Niven and Woody Allen and Ursula Andress and a whole bunch of people. I have it on DVD, but I'm not sure. I think I've tried to watch it in the past and it's just baffling and weird. <laughs> but I should try and give it another go. So I'm sure we'll continue to talk Roger Moore through the film. Do you want to carry on with your list, Stu? Yes, I will. Yeah. So uh, the next th- item on my list is uh, apparently this is the Bond film where magic is real. <laughs> um, so so that's a thing. <laughs> so obviously we have we have Solitaire, who is uh, I think an actual like fortune teller can tell the future and can tell truths and things like that. And the movie plays that as absolutely straight and a, and a power that she loses. She's got a magic vagina. <laughs> well, no, I think, I mean, it's she's got a magical hymen, I suppose. <laughs> that's true. You know, and that's assuming a lot of women don't have hymens at all. So I'm being quite reductionist. And it is, I mean, if you think about it, the whole idea that, look, if this woman has sex, I lose my power. You know, it's a little bit reductionist, isn't it? It's a bit like, this, we've got to keep this girl a virgin until I decide not to. It's a bit creepy. It is a little bit creepy, yeah. Um, and also uh, there's, like, literal Baron Samity is running around, who's meant to be an actor, apparently, but then at the end, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Like, it has, like, the horror movie ending. Yes, it does. Like the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. End. Yes, yes. That's what I was thinking. Of. I was thinking like a Treehouse of Horror episode. Well, we can talk in some detail as we get into it about the, the voodoo and Baron Samdi yes. and fortune telling and the um, solitaire's power. Apparently it's an obia is the term for this. It's not really a religious practice. I've been trying to look it up. I, I'm not even sure how I would describe it without insulting people, but I will um, I will try to bring it up. But um, c- carry on with your list. Fair enough. The next item is uh, Kananga Balloon, uh, which yeah. is a, a big thing in this movie. <laughs> I forgot to write that on my list, but yeah. I mean, the, what... uh, the villain Kananga uh, meets his end by sudden inflation uh, in what was obviously <laughs> a balloon <laughs> that was then blown up. And you even see, like, the red pieces in the water of the boy. Yes. Oh, God. It Just... does have, though, a very Austin Powers ripped off the whole dangling them over water with the sharks. Yes. That's very much in the first Austin Powers movie. So That's a very Austin Powers movie. And, and, but even, like, that particular death, the way it's shot, the concept of it, is a very Austin Powers thing. Yes. Like it's a it's a it's a slapstick comedy yeah. move rather than a Bond film move. It's just very strange. Like why didn't he just blow up? Why did they have him blow up like a balloon? I guess comedy. <laughs> I guess yeah, I guess. So they were going for a lighter tone. It is strange, and I think it regularly ranks as like one of the worst deaths in Bond. Or... It's pretty bad, which sucks because as a villain, Kananga's not bad. He like... also gets a bad rap, and I'm weirded out by that because I think Yafet Koto is incredibly charismatic on screen he, he is and, and he has a bunch of those aha welcome mr bond sort of moments yeah in, in the movie he's a great bond villain i do like when he's like oh mr bond come join me for a drink i'll yes. be feeding you into my death machine later ha 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 i do like that time allow me to explain my evil plan yeah he gets really chipper at the end there like he's lost solitaire and he's 
furious at Bond, and then he's all chipper by the end, going, "Oh, there you are! I was expecting you. Look at my cravat." But I love that because he 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 was quite serious throughout a lot of the movie, and he's quite uh, ruthless. And then at the end, you can tell that he's gone beyond fury to just come in. Let me show you how I'm going to kill you. And of well, course, we keep mentioning that all of Bond's villains tell him the whole plan. <laughs> yes, that they do the monologuing thing that they made fun of in The Incredibles. But this is where this started. Mm, yeah, absolutely. This is ground zero for all of these incredible tropes. <laughs> I feel like there's a few that have been established. We've definitely had a villain monologue before, but but this is, this is a very good villain monologue where he just lays it all out. He's like, this is what I'm doing. Yes, with the drug plan. <laughs> with the drugs and, and everything. He's like, this is what's happening. And then he's even, he's even getting Bond involved. He's like, come now, what do you think this is for? Yes. <laughs> You're a clever man. Come, come, Mr. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> So I found a quote from Yafet Koto in which he said, there were so many problems with that script. I was too afraid of coming off like Manton Moreland, who I looked up was sort of a, an African-American vaudevillian performer from the 30s oh, okay. and 40s. And Yafet yeah. Koto says, I had to dig deep in my soul and brain and come up with a level of reality that would offset the sea of stereotype crap that Tom Mankiewicz wrote that had nothing to do with the black experience or culture. Koto said he did this by drawing on a real-life situation I was going through, and that saved me. But the way Kananga dies was a joke. The entire experience was not as rewarding as I wanted it to be. I mean, that's fair. That's a pretty fair reading of this movie. But he, he was in the making of documentary that I watched. I don't know if he still would be if they made it now. <laughs> But that was sort of made in the mid to late 90s and he was in the making of documentary talking about the film. Having said that, they definitely did not include any commentary that he may have made about not enjoying the process. So they (laughs) selectively edited him. It's entirely possible. But, yeah, I can see – I'll just backtrack a bit to – because I had Yafet Koto on my list um, pretty much next as well. Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote it, he was offered whatever book he wanted to do, and he said he'd like to do Live and Let Die because it involved a black character, Mr. Big. So Kananga was an invention for the movie. Okay. Kananga uh, was named after something else, uh, which is in my list, which was um, Crocodile Farm. Yes. (laughs) Kananga was – Before Tiger King, there was the Crocodile Farm. Right, and he owned a crocodile farm in, oh gosh, where did they film? Uh, New Orleans, I think, Louisiana. And uh, he was a white guy who owned this crocodile farm. Similarly, his dad had been eaten by crocodiles on the crocodile farm. Oh, and, God. Yeah, so in the making of Doco, um, one of the producers talks about how he <laughs> he was pointing out the crocodile going, this one this one ain't my dad. Oh, no, it was Roger Moore. It was Roger Moore saying, point out and go, that one ain't my dad. <laughs> But he, they found his crocodile farm and they had the idea for the scene of Bond being, you know, thrown to the crocodiles. And they named in tribute, Tom Mankiewicz named the villain Kananga after him. Right, okay. Oh, was he white guy? He might have been Native American, part Native American. Just checking that one there. So this is, 1973 is black exploitation time. Um, sure. When the, this kind of genre of filmmaking, and this is a very, very broad overview, a genre of filmmaking that kind of centred black people and their experiences and made these action movies. So they weren't just sidekicks and maids and servants and you know hustlers or whatever. They were the, the heroes and the villains and were in control of their own story. And a lot of people loved them, but equally, Equally, a lot of people began to resent them because they felt they were portraying stereotypes of black communities and saying that they were crime-ridden or it was all drugs, sex, money, that sort of thing. Snakes and dancing. Yes. 
<laughs> so by the late 70s, the genre had sort of fallen out of fashion because of this kind of um, revolt against it. But then it still carries on, I guess, like Quentin Tarantino was a fan of some of them and he references them in his films and they, you know, remade Shaft, which is one of the most famous ones. So it stayed around in certain forms, but it's more these days kind of there's a different treatment of it where it's more that sort of like even Austin Powers gold members it's sort of a parody of black exploitation with sure. Foxy Cleopatra and all that stuff so Bond has jumped on board this train and the writer Tom Mankiewicz said that he had been watching you know black power around and there was a big explosion in civil rights and he thought it, it was interesting to have African Americans as you know as the villains essentially as the crime ring so that's why he chose that but I guess from Yafet Koto's point of view is you're a white guy writing about black culture and it becomes a story about drugs so you're buying into the stereotypes and also you've got the the you know African-Americans as the villains predominantly but then you've got a white guy as the hero and he actually wanted to cast a black woman as solitaire he wanted to cast Diana Ross and he says in the making oh okay Yeah, he said in the making of he thought that would have been really groundbreaking, but they decided to go with, because in the novel Solitaire is a white woman, and they decided to go with that because they wanted to cast Jane Seymour. So there we go. I mean, you know, if you have the opportunity to cast Jane Seymour, cast Jane Seymour. She's great. Well, she was only 22. She was such a baby. (laughs) She feels young in this too, like like in a way that... Stop James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) He's well, like, yeah, I mean, she just feels very young in a, in a way that a lot of the other Bond girls, who some of whom have been, have been quite young as well, haven't really felt young like that. She feel, there's an innocence about her, yes. which is so it was partly written in and partly the way she plays it. But well, yeah, the story's about him taking her virginity. Like that's a major <laughs> well, yeah. plot point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> he waved his magic penis. <laughs> Abracadabra. And a stacked deck of uh, lovers' cards. Yes, yeah, so that's so that's why they went. But they did make an effort to put in some African American characters who weren't all just bad guys. So they have Quarrel Jr. and they have one of the FBI agents who works with Felix Leiter. So they're not big parts, but they did try, I guess, to make an effort to not have all of the villains be black guys and all of the heroes be white guys. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I like I remember as a kid again watching this and watching it again now. You sort of realise, wow, okay, there's well, there's a lot that I missed as a kid. Yes. It's just a lot that went over my head. But again, it's kind of, I still think, and I say this, you know, advisedly, but at the time, apparently there were a lot of people who, you know, liked the film because it, you know, had so much representation for people of colour. Sure. I mean, like there's there's a lot of different roles for African-American actors in this, in this movie, which I imagine must have been welcome, even if they weren't particularly comfortable with the subject matter. And one of them actually got to play a good guy. I mean, admittedly, a good guy who died off screen <laughs> yes who was that uh, the cia agent oh right who yes. was watching the uh the funeral march the right. second time yeah. do those people just like sit around and wait for mr big to let them know that they need to do a fake funeral like what what's going on it's so because it's the same both times i know but practically what i know why because they just did the first bit and then they reset and then did the second bit yeah at but, least recast the widow yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> I love that though. I remember loving that going, it's the same. It's they're all 
on staff. You know, they're all paid. But Can I you like- explain to the listeners exactly what happens in this scene? Or yes. are we expecting them to have just watched the film as well? <laughs> so at the start of the film, three British agents, I guess, are killed in different ways. One at the UN through a poisoned headset, which I don't even know if you can do, but he's like shot through his headset or, or they turn up a sound which kills him. It's like the brown note, but louder. He poops himself to death, I assume. (laughs) And then everyone else at the UN just looks at him. He collapses on the table and everyone's like, yeah, so? British guy passed out of sleep. Yeah, checks out. (laughs) One is Baines, who's another agent who is killed by the snake in the voodoo ceremony. That is the, I mean, I know it's 1973, but that is the cheapest snake head i've ever seen in that shot yeah, it was real though it was a there's real- a real one but then there's the bit where it bites him and that's not a real snake that, that is a rubber snake oh, that okay. is a rubber snake well, and also that that snake is clearly a python now this is interesting because the, the bit of him actually kind of collapsing after he gets bitten that's him actually fainting because that actor was terrified of snakes what really yeah and he that's fainted. not true that's apocryphal it was in the documentary that I yeah, just... Yeah, I'll bet it was. <laughs> when Baron Samdi at the end, I'm skipping ahead, but Baron Samdi at the end gets thrown into a coffin full of snakes. They actually did it. They actually had him go into a coffin full of snakes. And the only reason he did it is because royalty was visiting the set that day. Like one of the Queen's cousins, Princess Alexandra, was visiting the set and he didn't want to do it, but he was like, oh, royalty's here. I'll buck up and do it. Fly <laughs> back and think of the Queen. Yeah. The Queen's second cousin. Couldn't you just put in the fake snakes for that shot? Like, it, it wasn't that... I was about to say, yeah, you you don't... They didn't move around that much anyway. Like, it, I, I assumed most of them were, were rubber snakes anyway. No, they were all real snakes, apparently. Wow. And then Jane Seymour was telling a story about when they were shooting the scene where she was tied up and the, the guy dancing who's got, like, the big bear sort of head. Is it a bear yes. or a wolf? He's got, like, a big animal head skin cloak and he's the one holding the snake and he didn't like snakes either (laughs) right it's a common phobia but he got used to it and he was holding the snake but then they were doing a take and the snake kind of flipped down and bit him now obviously they're not venomous snakes i assume well like i said that that, that's clearly a python yeah like like they will still bite you they will definitely bite you but it's not poisonous I saw a video on YouTube the other day of someone like feeding their pet snake and the snake Ugh. comes out the top of the thing and they're like, oh, he's come to see, he's come to see us. He's come to say hello. He's active today. And she puts her hand out and it just does that Python thing where it just goes snap and something's yep. wrapped around her shoulder and like biting into it. And she needs to get another. And it's like three meters long. This guy's got a hook and he's trying to. Yeah. She's like, okay, if you just unhook it on from under his jaw. Oh, boy, this is, this is really painful now. And they finally unhook it. There's blood splattering across the floor. And it's just, there's something so visceral about watching an, an animal trying to eat a person. Yes, yes, because that's what that snake is doing. Yeah. So you're like, I, I oh, it's un- just a python. Nah, fuck pythons. Well, no, no, that, that's true. All I'm, all I'm saying is it's not venomous is, is yeah. my point. They're like, not, it will still definitely attack you. They're not holding up an eastern brown and just... No, just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the Jane Seymour, so this guy gets bitten by the snake, he drops it and screams, and everybody runs over and running to make sure he's okay. Meanwhile, the snake is on the ground slithering towards Jane Seymour. Sure. And she's tied up. She can't do anything. So she's in this documentary going, this is all very Freudian. listening to me. Nobody was paying attention to me. And this snake is coming towards me and I'm tied up and I can't move. And eventually the snake handler noticed and came over and, and picked it up while it was a few inches away from her thing. <laughs> 
but yeah, where were we? No, that's Kananga anyway. Like I think I think that's what started us on that I that tangent. We'll return to to Kananga. Yes, uh, he's an interesting character, and yeah, absolutely. The fact that they made him Mr. Big in that whole masked. As a kid, I remember being entranced by him taking off his his mask oh my god it's the same guy that was very surprising because i'd forgotten that element of the film and so when that happened i was like oh okay fair enough i saw mr big i was like there is something wrong with that guy's face yes they got a white guy and they've done him up in blackface is this this what we're doing and i wouldn't put it past him this time i really noticed how shonky the facial prosthetics were and like, you don't get he he's on the other side of the room. You can tell that they realized how bad they were. Yeah, and they kept him as far away as possible and yeah. they showed him a couple of times. So yes. But anyway, Stu, return to your list and I'm sure. Yes, we'll- um my next item is uh Teehee is a much better henchman than I remember. Very good, very effective. Love and the claw he, hand, it's great. He asked for that hook. Did he? Um, yeah, he asked for the for the hook because they said, oh, what would you like as your henchman kind of weapon? And he's like, well, you've had all these guns and all these other things. Give me something, you know, different, like a hook. Uh, and that's what he got because I don't think he's in the book at all. He was invented for the. No, he he feels very of this movie. Yes. Um, no, no, I love him. He's great. He's he's a good he's a good henchman, a great heavy. Um, and we get the final fight between him and Bond, uh, which is great. They they it's almost I mean they're on a train. It's sort of calling back to From Russia with Love a little bit. Yeah. Definitely. Which is interesting. I then had a uh, crocodile jump. Yes. Which is awesome because they actually did it. They did it. Now, on the making of documentary, you can actually see all five takes of the crocodile jump. <laughs> so someone's done this five times. Which one was this one? This was the fifth. <laughs> this was the fifth. Okay, because I was going to say, if it was the first... <laughs> You would be a bit annoyed. No. Well, you tell him that this four more times. Anyway. No, no, no. He did it, and you see him fall into the water, and at one well, point just essentially fall right on top of the middle crocodile and <laughs> hold it down. Like he's holding it down. Don't get angry with me now. But there are two other crocodiles right next to him. That's right. It's crazy. The guy had no fear. And Roger Moore, I think, in the in the making of just describes him as, oh, he's a lovely chap, complete lunatic. <laughs> and the sad thing is that when I finally watched that scene, I'd heard about the scene and I watched it and went, oh, my God, those crocodiles are so fake. Well, the ones that Roger Moore, whenever Roger Moore is in shot and you can see a crocodile. No, that shot where he's running across and they're all snapping. I'm like, oh, those are fake crocs. They weren't at all, it turns out. They were real. Yeah. Yeah. So he did it four times and twice he he makes it to the end, to that little island on the other side, but falls a bit short, isn't able to make the clear jump. So he kind of lands face first and his legs are in the water. And in one of the takes, he's literally pulling his leg up because a croc has got a tooth in his shoe. (gasps) And it's like, Pulling, like, come on, buddy. Ugh, you know, it's crazy. I'm sure it's probably on YouTube if you just look up Live and Let Die Crocodile Takes. Yes, I'll, I'll be doing that immediately after we finish recording. <laughs> and it took a long time each take to get the crocs in the right place because it's not like these are stage crocs. Yeah, he would have had to sort of feed them, I guess, and get them into position. And, yeah, it was a big undertaking. It was like the most complex – well, not the most complex shot – that was the boat chase, but probably after that, the risky. <laughs> and, and that was, if I didn't say earlier, that was Ross Kananga who owned the croc farm doing the stunts. They put him into James Bond's costume. Right, okay. And had him run across the things. Now, the other reason this is fun to talk about is because, of course, we all remember my <clears throat> birthday party. 
<laughs> yes. A birthday party that I had for a particular age. And my theme was James Bond, which was great. And uh, I wore a ball gown with a letter M on a necklace and pretended to be M. It, I just wanted to wear this ball gown that I got in a vintage sale. <laughs> but, you know, it's Bond. You can be fancy. So I just said, look, just dress up. That's the minimum you have to do. But if you want to, come in character, you know, find a character, find a moment, you know, and it was great. And I think you, Stu, came as Q. You had like a, a I did. I, I came as I, I came as a very half-assed Q. I got like a, a lab coat and some glasses or something, and I just sort of came and I said, I'm Q. <laughs> Maybe a little pocket protector, I remember. Yes, something like that, yeah. My good friend Simon came as a spaceman, so he went and hired like yes. a silvery astronaut suit. But Dan Beeston, <laughs> what did you come at? I think I was the only Roger Moore at the party, like specifically Roger Moore, James Bond. Um, and you could tell that because I was wearing an inflatable crocodile under each shoe attached <laughs> to my feet. Um, and so we had like the costume competition portion of the evening. And I think you I think you noped out of there, didn't you, Dan? It was like between you and Simon and someone else. And there you... was, yeah, there was, a, I think there were three prizes and four of us up there. And so I sort of, I took my leave because I'd already done my jokes and had my little <laughs> moment. And I was like, this is all I want. I don't need a, a like a, whatever, Tosh, Nat yeah, you, serving you've up done to the her bit. guests. The, the bit was its own reward. The bit was its own reward. Well, the reward happened to be, I don't know if you remember this, Stu, a whole bunch of McDonald's vouchers that we got from the radio station. Yes. There was also a uh, martini shaker. Oh, yes, that's right. So you right. could fuck up your martini. Not yeah. <laughs> stir it. But how did you assemble the inflatable Crocs to your feet? They were inflatable pool toys, and I and I just got some like big rubber bands or something and, and, and bound them on. <laughs> Unfortunately, about five minutes into the party, I must have stepped on something sharp, and one of my Crocs deflated. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, like, blow it up really quickly just before the, the award ceremony. <laughs> I wish I had photos of that. I'm sure, I do have a bunch of photos from that party somewhere, but I'll have to try and find them. But, yeah, it was such a good costume mm. idea. Definitely recommend it to people if you want, like, a really good James Bond costume. Crocodiles. Inflatable Crocs. I was <laughs> yeah. very pleased to get yeah, them real inflatable cheap, crocs is very good. And I said I, I, I'm, I'm not allowed to have the award because James Bond is supposed to be cool, and I came wearing Crocs. Big laugh, <laughs> left stage, to cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was a fun night. That was such a good party. And it's basically the only part of this film that I remembered was the crocodiles, which is why I was like, I want to come on for Live and Let Die because crocodile jumping and the best Bond song that's ever been written. And, in my opinion, the best Beatles song ever written. It wasn't the Beatles, though. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I don't really make it. I don't see a difference in the same thing, really. Well, just speaking of the song, something, because I had that on my list, but it was Paul McCartney, obviously, and Linda McCartney who wrote it and performed as Wings. So not the Beatles, but Wings. Paul McCartney was so expensive. They didn't have the money then to hire John Barry, who normally did all the orchestration and wrote the scores. Oh. Like, so what they did was they got George Martin, who was like the Beatles <laughs> – Yes. Manager or something or producer? Well, uh, their producer. So he then wrote the score. So oh, God. that's why it has a different sound because it's not John Barry, but also because obviously George Martin went and watched a whole bunch of like Shaft and stuff and put all of this. I have a question about the music in this film, because whenever there is like this really actiony fist fight, it's like dead silent, except for this sort of poof. 
poof, like foley of meat hitting meat and then just yeah. deadly silent and we're so used to hearing like the music kick in when there's a fight nothing but then bond catches a taxi and it's like da 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 and he's just sitting in the back of a taxi it's we- almost harking back to dr no when it would just be like the the, the james bond theme would play when he would walk across the a hotel room <laughs> yeah but the thing is that happened in Diamonds Are Forever too, in the elevator. That that fight scene started off in silence and just like the raw Foley sound. And that's happened in previous Bond films before. And I wonder if it's like a shift in cinema where you used to leave the fight scenes to be, you know, clean and... Like intense and, and, and dramatic. Yes. Whereas now you kind of jump into the music and the action from the very start. I wonder if that's like a shift that we'll start to notice in the Bond films as we go along. Yes, because this be. isn't just a travelling through Bond films. It's sort of travelling through cinema itself. Yes. And Roger Moore, as we go on, they'll start making in-jokes about other cinema. <laughs> <laughs> you know, particularly Moonraker, which is just one big in-joke. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Stu, do you want to go back to your... Yes, yes, sorry. Uh, we had the crocodile jump, and then the second last item on my list was a boat chase. Very long, very elaborate boat chase, which started off kind of boring to me. I'm starting to realise that I, I maybe just don't like aquatic-based Bond. <laughs> I love aquatic-based bonds. Which is strange. I, I thought I did, but it's just any time he gets in a boat, it's just like, come on, man. I don't know. It's just very strange. But having said that, the chase won me over when they started like flipping boats over the roads and things. Yes. I was like, that's really cool. Because, again, it's one of those things where it's 1973. They definitely did that for real. Yes, they did. Yeah, so- it's awesome. I love it. They got from the boat company that supplied them, they got like 30 boats. They destroyed 17 of them during rehearsal. (laughs) 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 It's survival of the fittest. We only want the 13 most powerful boats. The ones that fall to the wayside are no good for the film. Again, not to continue going back to I'm the making of, but there's this hilarious behind-the-scenes footage of when they did the shot where Bond takes the boat across sort of that point in the bayou, so there's a wedding happening, yes. and he skids the boat across the land and goes into the other side of the bayou, takes a shortcut. There's all this behind-the-scenes footage of Guy Hamilton telling the crowd, okay, so he's going to come from this direction, another boat's going to come from behind, you can look either way you want, the main thing is to look, you know, surprised, he's directing the action, and then they go, okay, action, The boat comes in. The first time, it doesn't get onto the bank. It just comes straight out the bank and goes thud. (laughs) Which is, to be fair, what would happen? They get the the guy out and there's footage of all this crew helping this stunt driver out like he's holding his head. (laughs) And then they get the Bond boat. So that was like the stunt, I think the... um, the test run or something like that. So then they get this, the Bond driver to do his one and he comes out and he slides across the documentary cuts to uh, I think one of the producers or one of the, the you know other set guys going, I was looking at him going, he did this perfectly, he came straight out of the water and he was heading straight for the other side and straight for a, a rock like or a tree, a tree. And he just, this, this beautiful slide in front of the wedding party and then bang <laughs> into a rock. <laughs> Oh, dear. And then there's shots of him lying on the ground with an ice compress on his <laughs> And then they, I think they cancelled the shoot for that day because they had two major accidents. And then when they came back the next day, the rains had come in and that, that part of the, the bayou was flooded. All the wedding chairs that they'd left out were, like, floating. 
half floating in water. Ooh. It was very, very elaborate. But the jump when they go over the road when Sheriff Pepper is there, and we'll get to him, that jump was an inadvertent Guinness Book of World Records. It oh, like, really? Yeah, it was like 34 metres. Yeah, and so it was like they inadvertently set a world record filming that that shot. <laughs> It's an impressive sequence. I think it's quite long. It does seem very long now. I wonder if, if a stunt scene now would go for as long. There's a lot of build-up. Like, like it, it's like a mini-movie in itself because, like, there's the initial chase where there's just sort of, they're just sort of tooling around after each other. And then they start jumping roads and things. So there's an escalation to it all. And, and then they, they go through the police barricade, which is an incredibly ineffective barricade, by the way. <laughs> where they, they're like, we've got, to, we've got to barricade it off. Boom, just plow straight through it. Everyone just plows straight through it. It's insane. It's a barricade of hope that people will stop. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm interesting boat chase. Uh, and then the last thing on my list was, and if you want to discuss this now, J.W. Pepper, who <laughs> arrives in this film uh, in the middle of this boat chase as some bizarre little golem that has crawled out of the Louisiana bayou and suddenly stumbled into a James Bond film. It's it's bizarre. Yeah, it's kind of weird that a uh, that a racist police officer who's targeting black people, like who was introduced as comic relief, doesn't really feel like comedy anymore. Yeah. It certainly doesn't feel like relief. I feel like it's not really hitting the way it's. I think it's the filmmakers intended in 2020. And that's the thing. And that's what Tom Mankiewicz said. He, he wanted to have this character who was... A, a southern idiot so that people could see him you know picking on the black characters and generally just being a racist shitbag and yeah now it's like Ugh. but that that actor who plays him is from new york like he that's all that accent is all put on and uh he will sounds like incredibly realistic <laughs> southern accent it was a oh what a masterful actor sometimes i hear america southern american accents and think you've got to be bunging that on and they aren't it's a strange one i will say <laughs> i'm sure they probably think the same of us <laughs> With our Australian accents. <laughs> oh, what are you talking about, mate? Oh, no, mate. I'm just here watching some Bond films, eh? Fair suck of the sauce bottle. I do notice when I edit the podcast how often I inflect upwards. And I've always tried to be so careful about that, you know, when I was a newsreader. Not upwardly inflecting at the end of a sentence. There's a specific name for it. It's like the Australian high inflection. We all do it. And now I'm being super conscious to lower my voice. Now I'll be thinking about it for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, well, you don't do it as much, Stu. It does tend to happen slightly more in women than men. But men do do it. But it's more noticeable, I think, in, in women because we already start with a higher pitch and then we go even higher. <laughs> and, le and let's face it, Stu starts so bassy that anything that yeah. even approaches treble just makes him easier to listen to. <laughs> I feel my body shaking whenever he makes a comment. <laughs> that is true. Whenever I need like a voiceover for something for theatre or whatnot, I tend to go with Stu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy for the practice, really. <laughs> <laughs> so on my list, I had very similar things. Roger Moore was 45, uh, solitaire. Now her practice is Obia, O-B-E-A. Yes, which is, which is a real thing. It's a real thing. It's not, listeners, it's not a real thing, real thing. It just <laughs> happens. Well, look, in the same way that, like, as a non-religious person, you could say that all religions are magic, um, but this is a form of spiritual belief, I guess. So that is 
a real thing. Does that make sense? Yes, it exists. <laughs> it, it is a real belief system that exists in the world that they co-opted into this movie and gave to a white lady. Yes, and it's not. So this is the definition according to Wikipedia. Obia is a system of spiritual healing and justice-making practices developed among enslaved West Africans in the West Indies. Obia is difficult to define as it is not a single unified set of practices. The word Obia was historically not often used to describe one's own practices. It has been contended that what constitutes a beer in Jamaica has been constructed by white society, particularly law enforcement. It's similar to other Afro-American religions such as Palo, Haitian voodoo, Santeria and hoodoo in that it includes communication with ancestors and spirits and healing rituals. Nevertheless, it differs from some religions like voodoo in that there is no explicit canon of gods or deities and the practice is generally an individual action rather than part of a collective ceremony or offering. Yes, so it's like a, I guess, a personal spiritual practice. And Does it involve tarot readings while dressed up like an Egyptian princess? Yeah, I don't know why they have that costume, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a great costume, and apparently it's part of the chair? Yes, yes, it's built in. She like has- it, kind of, it kind of opens and she steps out of it? It's, it's yeah. great, I love it. It's so good. She's great. She just looks, apparently the reason she got the part is they got her in and said, oh, take your hair out, and she let all her hair down, and they went, yes. Your cast. <laughs> She'd been on TV. She'd been in stuff. So obviously they knew she could act. But she, yeah. she looked the part. So it almost looks like a cape or giant shoulder pads that yeah. sort of sit on top of her. And she can sort of slip out, which also allows James Bond to sit there. Yes. And do some pretty amazing card tricks. <laughs> <laughs> like card tricks where I was watching him do like riffle shuffle and, and thinking, that takes a long time to learn. I wonder if I was making a film like this, whether I would have my star spend hours and hours a day learning how to riffle shuffle or whether I would put them in a chair with a big cape that doesn't move and put a stage magician behind them and stick my hands through under the star's arms. Is that what you think happened? <laughs> that's what happened. I mean, that that's definitely what happened. That's definitely what happened. Because he that? does this wonderful thing where he slides the cards. Out. Like, Roger Moore did not sit down for weeks and weeks and learn how to do those card tricks. You'll notice he only does it when he's sitting there and his arms look kind of weirdly back in his shoulders. <laughs> I haven't noticed that. Like there's all that room behind. Because I was like, yeah, this is how I would do it. And if I had to do it, I would have to have a great big chair and hide the shoulders somehow. I went, oh, they've hidden the shoulders somehow with that <laughs> big ridiculous Egyptian casket thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I've never even thought of that. I've just done a cursory Google, like, Roger Moore card tricks, live and let die, and it, it hasn't come up with anything. But I'm going to have to go back and watch it carefully because that seems possible. And I mean, I the, definitely assumed that was what was happening. How? How did you just assume that? I was watching the scene. <laughs> I was watching the emotion. I was watching Solitaire go, you can't, don't do that, because I knew that James Bond had a totally stacked deck of lovers cards. Ah, <laughs> uh, the good old James Bond and the rape by deceit. Yes. <laughs> Now, come on. Listen. <laughs> Sorry, yes, go on, go on. Step yeah. up to the uh, James Bond justification booth. Oh, it's, it's a deception, which he later tells her. But she had got him to pick a card and he pulled lovers and said, is this us? And then she was reading the cards later by herself and she picked lovers and she lied to Kananga and said it was death and the whole trap for Bond went wrong because she, she lied. So she had already seen lovers. He was taking advantage of an existing situation. 
Now, it's not right. <laughs> you realise you realize what you're right. saying there, Nat. I know what I'm saying. I'm trying desperately. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I had that moment too going, oh, yeah, that is um, actually really dodgy. But she hadn't seen it. She knew it was coming. And also she was getting tired of Kananga. So she personally was reading for herself that she was going to break free. So what you're saying is that she really wanted it. She just wasn't <laughs> saying it. <laughs> oh, God, I'm a terrible, terrible... Is that boy. where... Um, the thing that distracted me the most about that scene is that we see Bond go into a tarot shop earlier mm. so yeah. that he could do that. At some point, James Bond, international super spy, has gone into a tarot shop and gone, yes, I'd, I'd like to buy 52 packs of tarot cards, please. <laughs> and then just go through each of them and go, lovers, lovers, <laughs> lovers, lovers. Oh, I am going to rape this girl tonight. <laughs> like, there was just this bizarre scene of him going, I'm going to get laid using this deck of cards. Look, Dan, 90% of success is in the preparation. Like, how much does a pack of tarot cards cost? How much does 52 packs of tarot cards? James Bond is well off. I don't know if you saw in the Fillet of Soul restaurant when James Bond sits in the booth, you know, the one that swings around. Yeah, great gag, by the way. I love a a twisty-turny thing. Haunted Castle here, all good. This movie is full of so many passages and secret exits and secret tunnels and swinging boots and things going up and down. I mean, it's a horror movie. It's great. I love it. I love that aspect of it. There's just so also, many- my favourite pun in the entire film was I had a bad turn in a booth once. I'm like, that's a <laughs> solid James Bond pun. I had a bad turn. It is a good one. Yeah. He goes, he, with the second time he goes into a club, I think it's Felix is like, oh, a, a booth? And he goes, no, not a booth. I had a bad turn in one once. And sits down at a table in the middle of the room, which immediately descends into the floor. There's a trap door. Of course there is. (laughs) Yes. But on the back of the booth wall is the menu and it's got Mm. prices. And a burger is like 40 cents. No, sorry. 80 cents. Yes. Most of them are not more than a dollar. Can you imagine a serve of hot chips for 20 cents? Yeah. It's pretty great. Sorry. I was just thinking about chips like but he totally spent at least a hundred american dollars on tarot cards like (laughs) you can buy prostitutes for less than that like you could (laughs) you could buy them in certain parts of the of of town like he's 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 investing a lot in this tarot reader it's about power for him isn't it (laughs) this is the way my brain, brain works i just assumed that he would walk into the tarot store and go i need 52 or however many tarot cards there are. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same as a regular deck. I need a deck of cards that's all lovers. And then they would have had to go, okay, and they go to their little, like I assume they just had racks of the different cards that they'd pull together, which is stupid. Why would you have that if you're buying a tarot deck? That's just the weird way my mind works. Like you could Maybe he just went up to the box of 52 of them and then a stage magician put his hands between them and did the riffle shuffle with all of them and then just got the really quickly got all the lover's cards out. <laughs> just palmed all the lover's cards and then yeah. walked out again. So um, just to go through the rest of my list, because I also had, well, I had like secret trapdoors and whatnot, the croc farm, the song, amazing, Mr. Big Kananga, J.W. Pepper, The Lover's Trick, uh, Yafet Koto, something here that I can't read my writing. But I want to talk a little bit about Rosie Carver, Mm. the first black love interest 
in James Bond. And something, Stu, that I did not mention last week during Diamonds Are Forever, which is very remiss of me, is that Trina Parks, I believe is her name, who played Thumper in Diamonds yes. Forever, she was the first black Bond girl. Oh, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I read an interview with her talking about how she felt that Bond has always been pretty good with diversity and casting. It may not be perfect, but they've had, you know, she said before me there were uh, Japanese women and I was there and then Live and Let Die, and she said there's a lot of diversity in Bond now, and she's 72. But I thought that was nice when I, I looked her up in yeah. this interview. But, yeah, so Rosie Carver is played by Gloria Hendry, and she was an actor, I guess, but she's the first. <laughs> I mean, technically, by the, by the technical definition of that term. I just realised I looked up her history and then blanked on it. So I <laughs> <laughs> was an actor. But their love scenes, you know, kissing and that sort of thing, mm. were cut in South Africa. South Africa cut them out of the film. Of course they did. Because of apartheid. And again, as a kid, I don't remember there being a thing about Live and Let Die. Like, I don't remember. Like, I read this and went, oh, my God, she's the first black love interest for Bond. I didn't know that. Do you know? Like, Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's true. And he definitely, you know, presses his case, as, as we've been saying. But, like, I think it's tempered by the fact that she is actually, like, a double agent. Like, it's this weird back and forth between them. And, and the fact that even by that stage, he has already expressed interest in Solitaire. So instead of being, like, That's... the main love interest, she's sort of, like, a stop on the way. Well, that there's always that in the Bond. There, there is. There is, absolutely. And there's no reason why, like, like a, a black girl couldn't be that role. Yeah. But I, just, I think I think that might be why maybe it hasn't like gone down in, in history or something as something that's really noted about the Bond franchise is just that, yeah, I mean, ultimately he's trying to get with Solitaire. I don't understand James Bond and his relationship with women. And I don't think he understands it either. <laughs> because I, I think he has some very complex issues. When he's with women, he seems to be like 100% invested he calls them darling. He wants them to be happy. He wants to live happily ever after. You always get the feeling at the end of a Bond film, if the woman is still alive, that <laughs> she they lived happily ever over after sort of feel to the end of it. That Bond's in love now and this is the only girl for him. But that'll happen to other girls throughout the film. And then he'll, he might get double-crossed. And then in a blink of an eye, he's like, oh, I, this is the girl that I wanted to be happily ever after with. But now I realise that she's double-crossing me, so I'm just going to spin around and let her catch the knife in the back. Like, he's so good at falling straight out of love in a heartbeat. Yes. Well, I, I think I think the point, and we've brought it up a couple of times already on, on this very podcast, is that James Bond is a psychopath. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, like Doctor Who? <laughs> yes, possibly. <laughs> I think that in Rosie's case, that he was suspicious of her from the beginning. And he's also really mean to her because she's not a good agent. She's new. She's she's only just done the case before of Baines who got bit by the snake. So she's not great. And he just sort of flat out, she tries to kill Quarrel. Instead of introducing her to Quarrel, Quarrel just doesn't really say anything. And then she notices him brandishing a rope and, and tries to save Bond and uses her gun. That's not a bad instinctual thing to do, but Bond just mocks her. Yeah. And it's like, of course she's going to think he's suspicious if you haven't said, oh, this guy's cool, we can trust him. Like, it was really mean. And then he says to Quarrel, she's rubbish, but uh, the benefits are obvious. It's like this horrible line, like a really demeaning line. 
the, the whole thing is she comes in as Mrs. Bond and he's like, oh, I might have sex with this, whoever this person is. <laughs> and then and she's like, we're going to sleep in different rooms. It's like, oh, OK. Yeah, and then she sees right. like a, a, a message from Baron Samity and, and she's like, oh, hold me, James, but, but just protect me. And then but I don't think anything happens. And then suddenly he's got her his arm around her on the boat. She's wear, wearing a, a really light bikini around him. Like they're going to a mission. He's fishing. Yes. I love that casualness. When does he sit there and go, I should probably double check this kite I'm going to hang from. Um, <laughs> I do love that. Like he's like, well, I'm on a boat. I may as well get a quick fish in. And he's wearing his white singlet. <laughs> <laughs> Like, all he needed was a handkerchief tied in knots uh, on the top. <laughs> she goes down to change and it ends up like, and comes out in like a tiny bikini. And it's like, why are you doing that? I mean, I know why, like for, for the movie, but like, why are you doing that? It makes no sense because then once they get there, she changes back and they, she changes back into normal clothes. I guess they're just normal people and they're like, oh, I got four hours on a boat trip. I might as well do a bit of fishing and a bit of sunbathing. Yeah, totally. Maybe bang my co-worker. <laughs> well, he certainly does with solitaire when they go back to louisiana to new orleans she's in the bunker at, in, in you know in the cabin of the boat and he says we'll just hand this all over to felix and then we'll be off where would you like to go and she says anywhere that has one of these like you know i know there was deception but she's just super keen on boning now like when Felix sends them off on the train at the end, he said, I don't know why you're taking the train. What can you do on a train for 16 hours? And they just both give him the like, thirstiest look. Like. <laughs> Say goodbye to Felix. And also, I mean, those train bunk beds, they're not particularly big and comfortable. Like I've done the Trans-Mongolian Railway. Hello. Hello. You're generally in a cabin of four. Not a euphemism. No, not a, really not a euphemism. There's no showers on board. I mean, maybe these are trains in the old days and they had them, but you get it's not really conducive to sexy times unless you're into that kind of thing, which is totally fair enough. I'm not trying to... I don't but, think that comfort has ever stopped James Bond. This is the man who had sex at the bottom of the ocean, you've got to remember. <laughs> That's true. Bottom of the ocean. It was like... Five metres down underwater, which is still not great. But The ocean's deep in some parts. Yes, but you said like the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Well, you know, if the, if the ocean's only three metres deep, then three metres down. Although, as we said in the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast, you need purchase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the water doesn't offer you that much purchase. A train does, but I, I just would have thought, get on a plane, you'll be there quicker, and you can hole up in a hotel. Wouldn't that be more comfortable? Okay, sure. <sighs> I tell you what, train journeys. I think there's a train journey in Spectre, because every podcast I have to mention Spectre. I'm pretty sure they take a train in Morocco, and you see Bond and the girl, Leah Sado, and they get dressed for dinner in the dining cart on mm. the train in Morocco. And it's like, I have taken trains in Morocco. There's no dining cart. <laughs> formal dining cart in the middle of the Sahara. like That would require like a nice dress and a tuxedo. White tie on a train. All I remember about our trip in Morocco is going from Marrakesh up to Tangier and sharing a cabin with the most racist French woman you will ever meet. She <laughs> just sat there. I don't think she was smoking, but it was like she was smoking. Like, I'm pretty sure she was a smoker. She was um, like a dragon putting out smoke. Pretty much. 
but she just went on the most racist rant about Moroccan people and we were just sitting there looking at her like mouths agape going, lady, what what are you? okay, we're just gonna go now. Um we're just gonna go down to the dining cart. There is I should specify there's like generally a dining cart on the long door like a food area, but it's not a formal dining situation. <laughs> It's not. You buy like a packet of chips there or something. Yeah, exactly. You don't dress for. Sorry, I just. <laughs> Spectre! Ah! I really don't understand why you hate that film so much. Well, I don't either, but we'll find out when we get there, Dan. Yeah. Did you like that film? I've never seen it. <laughs> just trying to bait you. Do you want to come back on for Spectre? I don't have to watch it. Well, don't you want to watch it? Not after all the things you've said about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have another great job of selling it, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe this is a good thing for the podcast like i go in with all my prejudices you go in with all my prejudices <laughs> and we see what happens where are we up to in this film though we are up to free discussion because i have mentioned uh, rosie carver and i just wanted to highlight that she was the first black woman love interest for bond and mention trina park stumper from diamonds are forever that's all i sort of had so oh there's a really fun bus chase, given that Dan and I co-wrote Speed the Movie the Play. <laughs> I wanted to talk. This this contained my favourite bit of the entire film. Yeah. Because, as I mentioned before, I only remembered the theme song and that crocodile thing, and I didn't realise that the whole thing was actually marginally problematic descriptions of African culture as seen through the European lens. It, just watching it, I was like, oh, I, can, I can almost hear Stu going, <laughs> well especially because I, I i really liked this movie as a kid I, I remember really liking it so i don't know what that says about me but <laughs> my my favorite bit of this entire film was the double decker bus chase and they do a handbrake turn with the double decker bus that like that made me lean forward in my seat and go holy shit because again they really did that. They really did that, and it was great. These days, they'd stick a big rotating spring underneath it, and the whole thing, had, you, you could spin it 18 times in an hour. And but you know, this thing, they just got some psychopath to pull the handbrake on real quick. got a guy who was a London bus driver. That's the guy they got to do it. Hang on, I'll find his name. I do know that Jane Seymour was on the bus for that stunt. Why would Why? she need to be on the bus? She's in the documentary going, I didn't need to be there. <laughs> and she said she was terrified. I bet she was. And then they also did the stunt under the bridge. But once it was all done, she was very proud of herself that she was on the bus for this time. And they show a close-up and you can see her. And she's like, it could have been anyone. And that she survived. Very proud yeah. of that. Well done. <laughs> the stunts involving the bus were performed by Maurice Patchett, a London transport bus driving instructor. So the chase involving the double-decker bus was filmed with a former London bus adapted by having a top section removed and then placed back in situ, running on ball bearings to allow it to slide off on impact. So when it hits the right. bridge. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. You know, half the time now you don't have to do that around Australia anyway. So many times buses and trucks get caught under those bridges. You know, they try to yes. go up and then you just see them like smashed up against <laughs> up against like a rail bridge or something. And then they had the police, the, the bent police cars like driving inside the chunk of bus and crashing with the with the big yeah. shell of bus yes. on it. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great action scene. 
there's really fun stunts in it for sure. It's very very entertaining in that. Well, sense. I mean, let's move to the next one, which is the uh, the airfield. Yes, with Mrs. Yes. Twinker. <laughs> The old lady taking flying lessons. Yeah, Bond, like, casually forces himself into a light aircraft and then proceeds to uh, do a car chase with it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... So the, the, he he manages to knock the wings off, and he's like doing like turns and driving down alleyways while all these ca- people chase him in in these beautiful 1970s cars. Yes, there's a lot of really nice looking cars in this movie. I'm not much of a car guy, but I'm at least even I'm sitting there going, "Oh, that's that's good work." There's also that pimp mobile in New York. Yeah, I was about to say they actually describe one as a pimp mobile. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that they have because that's the first time I think Bond has gone to New York. And I'm, I'm trying to think of other times he's gone to New York. I don't think it happens very often. No, and what about Tomorrow Never Dies? Is that a British newspaper or a uh, American one? Well, he's global. I think it's British newspapers primarily, but he's like a global media. Because there's a big building that he slides off the top of. Yes. Like, that's right. got to be US, right? Some of it's in um, China. But one in China, I think. Yeah, maybe that's what they got big buildings uh-huh. that do. But so the, there's a woman doing a flight test or flight lessons, and he's like, yes. "Oh, I'll be your trainer today," and then proceeds to take her on this terrifying car chase through the airport, and then jumps out, and then the next scene is like, "Well, she's in intensive care." Yeah, so that, that lady's had a heart attack, yeah. a <laughs> panic attack, and just put her on ventilators yeah. or something. She's been so stressed, traumatized. But I mean, think about it. You know, the kind of stuff that happens in Bond films would traumatise most people. It's just James Bond just walked away dusting his coat and, you know, saying, oh, well, here's a fun quip. Clipped her wings or something and then off he goes. I read a good uh, review quote, I think, in like a retrospective review of Live and Let Die, and it said that years later Bruce Willis in Die Hard would play a action hero whose, you know, action heroing gets him cut and battered and bruised. Whereas Roger Moore plays an action hero who, you know, looks like he can save the world without mussing up his hair. <laughs> yes. But that's what I love. That's what I love about it. I, I, I love both of those characters for those reasons. What else can we discuss with this film? Well, I want to talk about Baron Samity because <laughs> what the hell is going on with that? So Baron Samity has appeared a couple of times during the film and then in like the big climactic part he rises out of a grave on what is turns out to be like an elevator. Well, and that's the thing, because he, he rises out of the grave. Bond shoots hit the top shoots of his head off. him in the head. Yeah. And it blows turns out, part of his head off. Yeah, it turns out that he's like a clay statue, except like he, he looks up to see the top of his head blown off. Bond shoots him a bunch more times and he shatters into a bunch of pieces because he was like a clay figure. And then he rises up a second time and it's it's the dude. It's like a person and who is then attacked and killed by exactly snakes. exactly the same as whatever the ceramic golem yes. that was there before. Yes. And, and we've seen that guy without all the makeup previously. And also he was an actor at the start. And then at the end, he's on the train, like the front of the train, laughing at the audience. So yeah. Baron Samity is a real thing and magic exists now? I'm just not sure. Like, what's going on? Yes, it's very different. And I think I think the um, Baron Samedi, uh is a voodoo figure, which is kind of around Haiti yes. and that sort of area. 
I think it's a very simplistic positioning of Baron Samedi. I think it's a lot more complicated than obviously what they put in the film. But he is the god or the deity associated with death and the underworld and that sort of thing. And they've obviously concocted this idea of religious ceremony. Apparently they did go to that part of the world and look at local customs and things like that. Hmm. But then they've it's a Bond film, so they've And then and then Cherry picked a bunch and put uh, them in their movie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes, this is this is what we do. We we see yes, well. that's really cool, but it's a movie, so we have to ramp it right up. I prefer a, like a little bit more in depth and uh, sensible looking at Baron Samedi as seen in the the nineteen nineties VHS interactive mm-hmm. game Nightmare Atmosphere. Oh. oh my god, I remember playing that game only once or twice, but oh, you could only play it once or twice. <laughs> it's it's the same thing as the same video each time. <laughs> yes, it would depend on who you were playing with, I think, as to how some of the things would work. But not really. <laughs> but, yes, and then there was Nightmare 2. But, yes, Baron Samdi was, was just a guy covered in grey makeup going, hey, who is going to be come to my grave tonight? Or something. What a weird accent. <laughs> I'm trying to do a generic weird horror accent. I'm really not trying to insult anybody. <laughs> And yet still more compelling and more depth than Baron Samadhi in this James Bond film. I, do you know what? I find him really good. Like, as a kid, I found him really scary. I remember being incredibly scared by the way he laughs when he goes and turns the death card over. When Kananga, which is a great scene, Kananga reveals himself to be big. Sorry, wrong way around. Big reveals himself to be Kananga because he's asking James Bond to say, hey, did you did you mess with her? And she and, and Bond says, I'll tell Kananga that it's it's rude. To, it's between me and Solitaire and Kananga. Well, no, it's actually not between Kananga. <laughs> it's a two-person thing. But, yes, so Big pulls off his disguise. He's like, aha, well, now that I'm here, you can tell me. He's like, well, it's not the kind of thing a gentleman reveals. And then he gives Solitaire the opportunity to prove that she hasn't lost her powers by doing a yes or no question based on Bond's watch's registration number. She misses it. And then he sentences her to die by Baron Samdi, I guess. And he reveals this death card. But he's not in costume then. He's just the guy. And he just sort of turns over a car. And he does that really scary, I I can't do it probably without sounding offensive, but like, whoa. You know, it's this really charismatically scary laugh and he does it later as Baron Samdi and I, as a kid I found that chilling. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But but what I'm trying to figure out is, like, what's his job within Kananga's organisation? Like, general mise-en-scene? I like- it was to keep the local people sort of compliant and quiet because he's running a massive drug operation on San Monique and... He obviously doesn't want people blurting or... Also because Kananga seems to have, and I think this is what Yafet Koto tried to bring to the character, is that obsession with the occult. You know, he like, he has Solitaire there so he can make moves based on the cards. He's got Baron Samdi there. Mm, that's true. So I wonder if it's a way of going, well, I believe in these things, therefore other people will believe in them and that will help keep them quiet or compliant or scared. Because, you know, Rosie Carver is scared of him. Baron Samdi leaves the calling card of the hat with the feather, or as Bond says, it lost a fight with a chicken, and leaves it on her bed, and she's terrified. Except she's also working for him. Well, that's right. She's terrified that if she does the wrong thing, she'll be murdered. 
But him. why would they why would they leave the hat? That it's just that one of those little things that doesn't make sense to me because she's a double agent. She's working for Kananga as well. So is she so putting why, it on? Yeah, like, like is but she's why trying to they... get into sight into into Bond's head? Yeah, exactly. Maybe it was just a reinforcement, like, hey, remember you work for us. Oh, so don't let oh, don't let Bond's magical penis turn you to his <laughs> side. We've still got the chicken hat. We've got yeah. we've got a magical hat. Yes. Uh, what else can we discuss about this movie? Uh, shark gun? Yes. Well, we talked about the um, death of Yafet Koto of Kananga. In there's the... more sharks. Bond films love sharks. Well, this is the second film that has sharks. Thunderball had sharks. Yeah. I feel like there's been sharks in other ones. There was sharks Maybe later in, on. Uh, yeah, is it License to Kill? Yes. Oh, later on, yes. Yeah. L- License to Kill, yes. And apparently, Stu, you'll be very pleased to know... The yes. dude who plays Felix Leiter in this film got recast as Felix Leiter in Licence to Kill. Oh, right, okay. 15 years later. Reprise <laughs> the role. Yeah, which means that I don't know that Felix Leiter appears again. Maybe he does, and I'm just... I guess oh, you'll I mean, find maybe, out. Maybe, I guess we'll find out in the next couple of weeks. No, you noticed there was the tiny monorail? Yes! And the really unsteady, um, like, canisters that uh, make <laughs> the, the heroin in. But if there's one thing that Bond villains love, it's a good monorail. <laughs> he does have quite the setup there on the island. It's not bad. It's, I mean, I guess heroin sells pretty well. Yeah, he's not even selling it. He's giving it away, his whole plan. So what do you make? That's a, that's a good question. What do you guys make of that plot? Because we've gone from you know, essentially three films with Blofeld trying to blow up or control the world Mm. in some way, like literally three films. And now we've got a drug smuggling ring. And Richard Maybaum, who wrote a lot of the earlier Bond films, I found this quote from him where he said he didn't like Live and Let Die because he didn't think running around in drug fields was a Bond film. Yeah, well, I mean, like running around blowing up drug smugglers' operations is what Sean Connery does at the start of... Goldfinger. uh, Of Goldfinger. Like it's it's the pre-credit sequence. Yes. You know, so so I mean, in effect, this movie is one giant extended pre-credit sequence for the Roger Moore era, I guess. And in the um, original book, it's not. <laughs> Take a guess, because I don't. Think oh you're... God. But both of you have a guess as to what Mr. Big is smuggling in the original novel. Is it is it marijuana? No. No. It okay. is not a drug. Oh okay. Oh my. Goodness. Like, <laughs> just knowing how awful the writer was, yeah. like, there are these horrible stereotype things that oh, they could no, be smuggling. Okay. It's, but, it's, uh, nothing, it's nothing bad or exploitative. It's not like human beings or it's it's an object that – so what he's trying to do is Mr. Big in the original novel, who's linked into the American Criminal Network, he also works for Smirsh. So this book was the fourth Bond book, I think. So it was before Spectre. So he is trying to fund, I guess, Smirsh trading in something, smuggling stuff. Just have a random guess. Exotic shells. You, you're kind of close in a weird sort of way. Yeah. I want you to think about the Caribbean and what was quite popular there once upon a time. Not slaves. Turtles. Turtles. <laughs> Okay, he, I'll just tell you, he was, I just wanted you to try and guess. He was trying to smuggle 17th century gold coins from British territories in the Caribbean <laughs> in order to finance Soviet spy operations in America. 
The coins have been turning up in Harlem in New York City and in Florida and are suspected of being part of a treasure that was buried in Jamaica by the pirate Henry Morgan. It's not the plot of Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> no, no, Le- Lethal Weapon 2 is uh, South African Krugerrands. Krugerrands, there you go. There, that's okay. And diplomatic immunity. My mistake. Oh, Stu loves his South African accents. Or was it last week was Blood Diamond, the Zimbabwean? <laughs> South African. Yes, so he, he was smuggling 17th century gold coins. That's wild. I can kind of see why they went with heroin. I mean, if they want to make it more grounded, then yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what James Bond needs is more grounding. <laughs> yeah. Well, and funnily enough, that, that was, I guess, way more realistic than evil villains with plots to take over the world. Like, you know, Kananga's whole plan was to drive the mafia out of business. That's quite an interesting plan. Yeah, well, exactly. But, I mean, it, it, it's true that it, it does feel very low stakes after the last couple of movies. The previous movie to this has a space laser made of diamonds. <laughs> and then this one, this one is just a, just a drug smuggler. You know, there's a little bit of flavour, a little bit of voodoo flavour put over the top, but then it's, it's basically just a drug smuggling cartel. The funny thing is, and I, I had totally forgotten this, or maybe I just never realised it in the moment, but Kananga is supposed to be the Prime Minister of San Monique. He's the Prime Minister. Yeah, they kind of blow past that. <laughs> yes. That's why he's at the UN. He's the yeah, Prime Minister. He's the Prime Minister. And, and I love that, like, that he puts on a tape to throw the CIA off and then gets dressed up in his pimp clothes as Mr. Yeah. Big. Well, and I never picked up on that before either. Like, oh, that's how he he leaves through a back entrance near the, you know, the occult shop. <laughs> occult shop. And I realised, oh, that's him. And they don't show him changing into his clothes. You kind of see them bringing in, uh, Teehee brings some clothes in on a hanger. Mm. You don't see him actually put them on and put on his weird prosthetics. Yeah, no, it's, um, it, it's just... Everything happening in the movie just feels very low stakes in a weird way, and I and maybe that's a, a side effect of Roger Moore not taking it seriously. I'm not I'm not sure, but we took it seriously enough to sign up for another six films after this. No, no, totally, but but like he's more like relaxed, hands off approach to the character in, in the sense that he's very he's more aloof, more sort of unflappable than than Sean Connery was. So we're we're not really reacting to some of the danger that might be going on. Yeah. So I, yeah, I guess maybe as we wrap up, what what do we think of Live and Let Die? Like, how do you position this film? As, as we said at the start, it's a weird time to be watching this film again. I know it's a cliched phrase, but it's so of its time. Like, without the rise of, say, the Black Panther movement and black exploitation and, and uh, civil rights, pressing for civil rights and all that sort of stuff, I don't think this movie would have happened the way it was. That was obviously in the zeitgeist to go, hey, let's put black people in the film. Well, that's the thing about these pieces of art that uh, appear so problematic now is that they had to happen to get from the point where no black people were in films to the point (laughs) where black people were in films and they were the heroes and it wasn't problematic at all. There has to be that bit in the middle where there are baby steps taken. I I always think back to uh, the the goodies. There's an episode where they do blackface at the end of it and there's lots of jokes about apartheid. But all of the goodies were very left-leaning. And when you make those sort of things digestible and you make the big message, hey, we're all sort of in this together, then it allows you to bring the real extremists closer to the... An ex- a place of acceptance so as much as you would never make a film like this now the fact that it got made is a really good thing 
Yeah, I hope so. I I think so. I, I hope that the positives outweigh the negatives in the sense that it brought in the first, you know, kind of interracial. I'm law. saying there are no negatives. <laughs> I'm saying from a, a race point of view that this was a brilliant thing that made it, that took a step up from what was behind it and was a step towards what we have now. And hopefully what we have now is a step towards something even better than, well, what is it? June 2020. Actually, we may have taken a couple of steps back in the last two weeks. But in general, it's a, a upwards direction. What you're trying to say is the old phrase, the arc of history bends long, but it bends towards justice. I actually think Martin Luther King Jr. said that. I hope I've credited that correctly. <laughs> yeah, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So hopefully... That guy sounds like a smart guy. Pretty smart. Look him up. Yeah. The, apparently his son has been on Twitter during all of this unrest in America, you know, referencing some of his father's quotes and, and teachings, and he's just had people on going, I don't actually think that's what he would have meant. <laughs> I think you're wrong. <laughs> Which is one of the most Twitter things I've ever seen. It's such a <laughs> Well, final thoughts on Live and Let Die. Great song. Great crocodiles. Good bus chase. Good bus chase. Poor representation of African-American tr- troubles and uh, cultures. Well, yeah, I would argue that, well, I would say that you're right, but also that it's like a it's like a fantasy world of black people, which isn't good because it leads yeah. to misrepresentation. It's through the lens of a British man. Yes. Um, Tom Mankiewicz was American, the writer, a white American guy. But, yes, the whole production team that was British and stuff, they all just were like, hey, let's do black people and drugs. <laughs> At least it was some representation, if not ideal. That's true. Dan made a very compelling uh, argument for why this movie has a place, uh, even though it is of its time. It was a step on the road, and uh, yeah. and it, it's, and there it's was, interesting. There were no white people in the film with blackface to play yes. African-Americans. Yeah. Which is a, a, a small blessing, because be you can just forward. imagine if they had made this movie five years previously, like Bond would definitely have blacked up at some point. <laughs> Mickey could, Rooney would have been yeah. playing the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you could definitely like, see that happening. Given that in You Only Live Twice, he he dons yellow face to go undercover as an Asian man. Like you can definitely see a version of this film where Bond dons blackface to go undercover in Harlem. I'm glad that they actually learn their lessons. In yeah. a couple more Bond films, Roger Moore will dress up in white face and it'll all be balanced out. <laughs> A little bit of sizzle for you listeners. Absolutely. A little bit of sizzle. Uh, you're referencing the clown makeup, aren't you? Cha-ching. Okay, good. Because all of a sudden I was like, what? What have I missed? What is Dan talking about? Well, Stu, we have to decide where we put this film on our list. Yes, exactly. I, I, I struggled a lot with this. I don't think it's a bad film. Like, like uh, all the problematic stuff aside, it's actually... It's not bad. Like, like the, the plot is very low-key, but there's some good action sequences. It's, it's not a bad first outing for Roger Moore. And I was like, well, and, and, but I, I do have a bit of a nostalgic fondness for it. But then I'm trying to place it, and I'm sitting there going, well, it's it just kept dropping further and further down the list. And I eventually ended up putting it in sixth place, just below On Her Majesty's Secret Service and above... You only live twice. Weirdly enough, I am putting it in fifth place, which is just below From Russia with Love and just above On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Really? Okay, so so you put this above On and Her I, Majesty's Secret Service. I think I have to put it there because of key reasons that don't 
include the black exploitation, which is I appreciate not great, but just as a film, it has a lot of emotional excitement for me because again I have to factor that in because there's you know that's what I've been doing with a lot of the other films. I think the plot, while crazy, makes a bit more sense than say you only live twice or but I think it's the song. It's the kind of waka waka 70s of it. It's the <laughs> chase. Yeah, I think I just would probably watch this again more than On Her Majesty's Secret Service, as as terrible as that is. But I also think underrated is Yafet Koto. He's, he's, That's well, true. He's great. Yeah, a lot of what I was looking up rated him as a bad villain and one critic even said he just doesn't project evil and I was like but that's a good thing like he projects this kind of weirdly upside down take on American capitalism you know yes. yeah, yeah. the whole thing is running his drug empire like a business and driving other people out of the market and there's this weirdly American capitalist sense and he's yeah I just I find him a lot more of a charismatic villain than I think a lot of other critics do and the crocodile run and I just think for me, it sits up higher because of those reasons. So, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. No, I, I agree with all of that. I, I just think that um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service was so much better than I thought it was going to be. I have to put it above. And, and also, um, Tracy is, is the platonic ideal of a Bond girl. She's great. <sighs> yeah, look, she is great. And, I, and now, if I change it, Stu, we're just going to have the same matching list. So I'll... <laughs> I'll keep mine where it is. No, sure, yeah, yeah. Is and and we're only just out a little bit on that one, uh, and we can see how things take shape around it. Totally, we, we've been very close all the way through, but I'm interested to see how different our lists are, are becoming. Yes, Dan, do you have a Bond film that you actually really like? Um, not, <laughs> not they all sort of merge together. I I used to love watching the, especially the Roger Moore ones when I was a a kid like 11 years old because they would show them on channel 10 like every friday night yes they did right they They played them on a loop basically and other than the first two i was like totally into them because i i was had plenty of patience as long as there was going to be a bit of gadget work and a couple of cool stunts yep definitely but just watching this one again i'm like that boat chase is real slow (laughs) and there's some cool stunts in it but you could you could cut that down to like if you did it today those stunts would happen within five minutes of each other. Yes, definitely. And But in this case, it's like, wow, that's a quarter of an hour of boats whizzing up and down the river. <laughs> I just, I, you know, if you could do a supercut of all of the uh, Desmond Llewellyn stuff, that's my favourite Bond film. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, Stu, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion of Live and Let Die. It's been a complicated film and we look at it through our very... 2020 eyes and we see the past was a different place <laughs> and the future. Oh, i am delighted to have been invited on i love being able to chat about pop culture greg never lets me <laughs> <laughs> well yes if you do want to have a listen to smart enough to know better you can go to smartenough.org or check them out on uh, at se2kb on twitter they also have a facebook page smart enough to know better you can find Stu at Disco Stew on Twitter. I am at Girl Clumsy. We are both up for chatting James Bond anytime, so do feel free to call in, as we like to say. And Stu, as we always like to say, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Ah, oh, this martini's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Bruised. 